Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon in the studio with NYPD Chief of Department Terry Monahan, who is also a Fordham alum. Today, we'll talk about some of the NYPD goals for 2019 and other challenges facing the largest police department in the country. Welcome, Terry. Thank you, Robin. Glad to be here. So can we start with uh, some crime statistics? It's a new year since last we spoke. Uh, How did 2018 end in terms of the crime rate? It was one of the best years we ever had. Lowest total crime numbers we ever had. I think it was down around 3%, 2,000-some-odd crimes. Second year in a row that for major index crimes, we came in under 100,000, which had been a benchmark we'd been looking for ever since we started the Comstat era back in 1994. Shootings, unbelievably great year for us for the amount of shooting incidents that happened in the city, down to 753 off of, uh, I believe, it was 798 the year before. And only two, three years ago, we were trying to get down from over 1,000 shootings a year. And so we've dramatically, dramatically dropped that. Homicides, second year in a row, we came in with under 300 homicides. 295 turned out to be the final total compared to 292 the year before. So we were up a couple. But again, to come under 300 homicides two years in a row, it's remarkable for this city. And so what has the crime rate been so far in 2019? 2019, we are down dramatically over 2,000 crimes, index crimes, so far this year alone. It is remarkable. The index crimes were down. Shootings, we're having a little bit of an issue with. We've been up. uh, A big issue in Brooklyn that we've had for a while, uh, a lot of gang-type violence up in Brooklyn. So currently, we're up 26 shootings this year compared to last year. But as we look at our homicide rate, we are exactly even from where we were last year and where we were in 2017. So, I mean, the exact number, 82, 82, 82, which is kind of a little weird to look at today uh, as we look at the numbers. But uh, we're we're keeping that pace, hoping to come under 300 again this year. And we're working on uh, the shooting spike that happened in Brooklyn, and we're starting to get that under control. And I want to ask specifically, what are you doing in Brooklyn that might be different or new, or how are you deterring the crime there? Uh, what, what we did is we moved a lot of resources there. We came up with a five-point plan on how we were going to address the violence in that place and a couple other precincts throughout the city that had some violence. We were taking resources in on a daily basis, outlying precincts, putting them into the busiest precincts that we had to try and deter the violence. We had extra units called our SRG, our Strategic Response Groups. We were putting them specifically within precincts in Brooklyn, the 7-9 precinct in Brooklyn. That, that was where we were having most of our issues and in a lot of the housing developments, Tompkins, Sumpner, out in Brooklyn. So we got extra resources within the housing development. We actually had to pull resources out of Queens and put them into those developments over the last 28 days, and we've seen a real reduction in the gang violence that was taking place. And why were you able to move them out of Queens into Brooklyn? Is it less crime in Queens? Is there, was that less, there was less violence going on in Queens. So just to stop the uptick that we had, we were able to bring resources in there. Plus, we sat down with, with the DA out in Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez. We had some issues with, uh, with gun violence and gun prosecutions within that borough. And we sat down, we've came to some compromises, and we've seen some improvement, uh, getting better prosecutions. One, we're bringing better cases on our part into the Brooklyn DA's office, and we're getting better cooperation from the Brooklyn DA's to work forward to get uh, you know appropriate prosecutions for some of these individuals. 
Now, Terry, which type of crimes are most prevalent in which boroughs? We know, you know, shootings are up in, in Brooklyn, but what other crimes are prevalent in other boroughs? All right. For when it comes to violence, Brooklyn and the Bronx take the cake. That's where we focus most of our resources. Uh, that's where we deal with shootings on a regular basis. Those are the two big boroughs uh, for those numbers. Bronx, uh, they've had a tremendous year. A lot of great work has happened within this borough, and they're down dramatically in the violence. So I was sitting here uh, just about a year ago. We would have been talking about the uptick yeah. in violence in the Bronx. A lot of efforts gone into it, a lot of great case takedowns taken. The individuals responsible for the violence off the streets, working hand-in-hand with Darcel Clark over in the DA's office and working with the U.S. Attorney's office, Jeffrey Berman, in the Southern District. We've taken some really bad players off the streets in the Bronx. Same thing, Brooklyn, the violence. As I talked about guns, uh, for us to make sure we can continue going where we are, we have to continue to take guns off the street, and we have to continue to get that prosecution. When you look at the other boroughs uh, around the city, Upper Manhattan will also have some violence, not as bad as the other two boroughs. You go down to Lower Manhattan, very, very little violence, and that's grand larceny. People coming up, organized groups pickpocketing, organized groups doing uh, shoplifting in stores. And when I say shoplifting, I'm not talking about taking baby farms. I'm talking about going into high-end stores, Mm -hmm. taking thousands of dollars worth of uh, merchandise out of the stores. A lot of credit card fraud, check scam frauds throughout the city. A lot of that we'll see in Queens. Uh, We've seen a bit of an uptick in Queens when it comes to uh, stealing motorbikes. The electric bikes that seem to be going all over the city now, you're starting to see a lot of them getting stolen off the streets. So every precinct, every borough has its own issues. But the one theme that we always talk about, and when I run the Comstat meetings downtown, is the violence, of course, Traditionally, if we reduce violence, if we reduce guns, everything else seems to fall into place. And are these gun uh, violence, is it gangs or is it individual people? or A lot of it is gang-related, crew-related, different gangs that fight with other gangs or just for the simple reason they don't like them. They don't like the housing development that that crew lives in, so they have long-standing issues that go back and forth for generations. It's our job to try and interrupt that trying to prevent it. And every one of these crews, there may be 50 people that say they're associated with a crew, but there's probably two or three within each crew that are willing to carry that gun and use that gun. So that's the precision policing we always talk about, is being able to target those individuals. That's who I want. I don't need to take out 50 people. I need to take out anyone who's willing to participate in violence. And you use the word ComStat. Police language? What does that mean, ComStat? Computer statistics. <laughs> uh, I think it's more than, it's all over the place. It started in 1994. It's a meeting that we have down at headquarters. I run it now. We bring in the precinct commanders and we discuss what's going on. The violence that's happening within their precinct, the crime that's happening within their precincts. And we go down as deep as we can as to who are the players involved and what strategies we are going to deploy to rectify it. Are the resources we need to do in there? How the investigations are going? How we can improve the investigations? And we get down to very deep within a case. Because if I know the case, and if I know the individual involved in the violence, I hope my precinct commander better know it, and the detective commander better know it, and better have a plan. How am I going to rectify it? How am I going to 
resolve the violence? How am I going to get this individual who's causing the violence off the streets? So we are coming up on a half-decade mark for the NYPD division dedicated to combating illegal weapons and gang violence. If you had to rate the gun violence suppression division, what grade do you think they should get and why? They are one of the best things we've ever put together. As I've been talking about here, everything in this city, it revolves on how we're going to get rid of guns, how we're going to get rid of the violence associated with guns. They will run those cases. It was started by Jimmy Essek. And now Richie Green runs the unit. They will investigate every aspect when it comes to guns. They will look at the crews and gangs that I was talking about. And they will do an intensive investigation targeting the individuals involved in the violence and building cases. Whether it's scouring for hours video on a scene to see where the person involved in the shooting started from to where he ended actually doing the shooting. Seeing him with a gun earlier in the day up to the point that he pulls that gun out and utilizes it. They'll look at social media to see what interactions took place. Were there threats that so-and-so said, I'm going to go over here and get them, and then we get them on video with the gun, getting them go over there. It builds cases. It allows a DA to take a look, and it's just not one incident. It's These are multiple in- incidences. We look at ballistics. They will recover ballistics if there's shots fired and no one's hit. But we'll compare that ballistics to the instances where someone was hit or where a gun was recovered. And they take this case and they tie it up in a bow and identify five, ten people that may be associated in that violence and present it to the grand jury, to the DA's office. And we'll go in front of a grand jury, 20 individuals, present the evidence, and they vote, yes, this is enough to indict and make the arrest. So when we go in and do these case takedowns with gun violence... They're pre-indicted, so this isn't just a going in and sweep up everyone in the neighborhood. These are people who it's we've targeting. presented evidence, targeted, involved in the violence, been presented to a jury of your peers, the grand jury, and they voted on the indictment, and then we'll go in and make the arrest. That's one portion of what they do. They also do target investigations. If we know someone, one individual is involved in violence, he's been arrested with guns before, his name's popped up, Numerous times in shooting investigations, they will open an investigation on that individual to see what his vulnerability is. Does he deal drugs? Is he into credit card fraud? If we can't get him on the shooting right away, we'll see what other crimes he may be involved in and try and run an investigation along that way. Plus, their third prong is they're looking for the guns that are coming in. Where they're coming in from outside the city, the iron pipeline that comes in from the south, and we'll target the dealers, the ones who are bringing these weapons into the city and build cases against them and take them down. Chief Terry, where are the majority of the illegal guns coming from? They're still coming from down south. Mm. They're coming from Virginia. They're coming from the Carolinas. They're coming sometimes from Ohio out west. So there is a lot of ways to get guns in this city. So we have to constantly be looking on how we can protect our citizens. Do you think it's because the laws uh, in the South are are looser than they are here in the North, the gun laws? Absolutely. It's much easier to get a gun down South, much easier for them to bring it up to the North and make a a huge profit. You know, it's an illegal gun here down the South. It may not have been an illegal gun. So, and this isn't to say the South should change their rules. But in New York City, we are a city of 8.6 million people on top of one another. The last thing we need is more and more people carrying guns, because every time someone has that illegal gun, especially on their side, it's a moment away from a homicide. 
what is the biggest challenge in getting these illegal guns off the streets? Biggest challenge for us right now is we're getting them. We're making a lot of arrests. A lot of people arrested with illegal guns. Our biggest challenge is to make sure we're getting appropriate prosecutions. And that's working hand in hand with our DAs. Our cops every time, and we take literally thousands and thousands of guns every year where we make arrests, grabbing a gang member on the street with a loaded gun before he can use it on another gang member. It's a dangerous job. We saw it just the other day in Washington Heights when one of our cops chased a man with a gun and he turned around and he engaged in a gunfight literally over three cars. Our cop gets shot in the shoulder. It's a dangerous job that we put our cops out there every day looking to get guns off the street. So when we get a gun and it doesn't result in a discharge, we expect our prosecutors to take it serious and our judges to take it serious. We had an incident just a couple of weeks ago in Brooklyn where a known gang member arrested with a gun. Our guys had to chase him, chase him down, grab him. Luckily, he didn't pull it on him, didn't shoot at us. But again, they put their lives in danger. When he faces the judge, the DA had wanted him held on bail for this violent crime. Judge decides, going to set him right back out on the street and tells him to write a report on gun violence. You know, my cop put his life on the line to chase someone to get that gun off the street. We would hope our criminal justice system does their job and to at least show that there's some sort of repercussions for running around on our streets with a gun. What was the reasoning the judge gave for doing this? He doesn't have to give us a reason. He just doesn't. Judges have a lot of discretion. That was the, the call that that judge made that day that only need a report. Now, there is a push to prevent people from going into jail. And on minor crimes... A push by who, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, it's the, well, the state legislature. It's the mm-hmm. whole bail reform we're going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. And it's to close Rikers Island and mass incarceration. And when it comes to minor crimes, I agree. We don't need to be pushing people into prison uh, and having them stay there just because they can't afford the bail. But for violent crimes, for people who are willing to walk around on our streets carrying loaded illegal guns that can use them in a moment, that's the individual that needs to be in jail. There has to be an acceptance that as we make less and less arrests and less and less people go into prison, some people actually need to stay there because of their tendencies to violence. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, joined by NYPD Chief of Department Terry Monahan, who's also a Fordham alum. We're discussing some of the NYPD's goals for 2019 and other challenges facing the largest police department in the country. Now, speaking of bail reform, there have been calls for, as you said, New York City to to change its bail reform system. But some say New York City's been doing a a better job at bail reform. So what's your take on it? Well, we we are now faced with uh, the state legislature passed a whole bail reform act that takes place uh, in January of this coming year. And there's a lot of concerns with, with, with what they pass and the wordings that they pass. They took a lot of discretion away from judges to be able to make a determination that in this incident, someone should be in, if they can make that determination based on danger. And that's what we're looking for. If they, a judge feels that the individual 
that is in front of them is a danger to society for whatever reason that the judge should have the discretion in their power to set bail or remand them. According to the new law, it's really black and white on when a judge can uh, set bail and when a judge can remand someone. One of the biggest issues in conversation with the DAs that they have is with drug sales. Mm. Now, if you're a drug seller, if you're selling a kilo of cocaine, 2.2 pounds of cocaine to an undercover police officer, you're not going to jail. You're, you're going in and there's no bail set. This is, you know, are we encouraging the sale of drugs? Major. And I'm not talking about the guy who sells one, one time, sells one dime bag for the first time ever. I'm talking about a judge having discretion for major drug dealers, members of cartels to be kept in prison because they've been seized with large quantities of drugs. But according to the way it is written right now, as of January 1st, I don't care how much drugs you get arrested with, a judge is not supposed to set bail for you. That's an issue. That's that's an issue going forward. And, and I'm assuming it makes it harder for the NYPD when it comes to arrests. We can make the arrest, but when we're arresting somebody and we put an undercover out there to do a job, and the person that he maybe made numerous buys from is back out on the street the very next day. That's not uh, very safe for my undercovers either. Now, can we switch the conversation to marijuana? I know New York is one of the cities moving towards decriminalization, but there seems to be confusion as what's legal, what's not legal. So can you kind of break down what about pot possession is legal, what's illegal, what should we do, what should we not do? Right now, marijuana is illegal in New York City. The possessing of it is illegal. The smoking of it in public is illegal. What we've done is how we enforce. It is still a misdemeanor to smoke in public, but we are given summonses for the most part, if you qualify. So no arrest, but summonses. Right. There may be some people, based on circumstances, that will be arrested. If you have an open case somewhere else, if, if you're on parole or probation and you're out smoking in public, you can be arrested. So anyone should know, if you're smoking a marijuana joint, it starts as an arrest, and if you qualify, and most, 90% of the people will qualify, then it goes down to a summons. Okay. So it is not legal right now. And even under decriminalization, when we look in other cities, the smoking in public is not legal. That there is some sort of criminal sanctions, whether it's a summons or the possibility of arrest, that still exists in every place. Because you don't want people smoking around your children. We don't allow people to drink beer out in public. Or even smoke cigarettes in some places. That's decriminalization. You have to figure out, where can a person smoke? In public housing right now, you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes in your apartment. So you're not allowed to smoke marijuana in public. And you live in housing, you're not allowed to smoke it in your apartment. It's our job to enforce laws, but we need the laws to be worked out in such a way that it's going to be... Practical. Practical for our cops to understand what they need to do. Because phone calls are going to come in. People are going to be complaining. They're smoking marijuana under my window. They're smoking in the apartment above me. I can't sleep at night. These are all the quality of life issues that we're going to have to have some way of dealing with on a regular basis. And then there's driving under the influence. That is an issue that we're going to have. More people are smoking marijuana. 
is the detection procedures to know if a person is high on marijuana or not. It's not the same as alcohol. With alcohol, there's a specific test that measures how much alcohol is in your system. It hasn't been determined yet how much marijuana in your system now makes you legally intoxicated or a test to tell you how much is actually in your system. You know, the THC can stay in your system for upwards of 30 days. So just because it's in your system, does that mean you can't drive? These are all the things... That you're weighing. That we're weighing, and it's really the legislatures are weighing to figure out. The idea of growing marijuana, that was one of the things they're saying, that they'll allow people to grow certain amounts of marijuana within the house. But we've had tragedies in grow houses around the city, of fires starting. We had a battalion chief get killed in a house that exploded because it was a marijuana grow house. So, again, a lot of issues that have to be worked out. But as a police department, once the legislature works it out... It will do what we do. We'll enforce the laws the way they're supposed to be enforced. And when it comes to raise the age, for example, New York was one of only two states that automatically prosecuted 16 and 17-year-olds as adults. But now the city's moved towards uh, raise the age of criminal responsibility to 18 years of age. So how has that affected the NYPD? It's how we just deal. Listen, a lot of our violence that we talked for a lot of gang members are under the age of 18. It's something that we have to deal with. We are still going to do our prosecutions the same way we always have. Once they get into the court system, they'll go to a different court system. They may go to juvenile court. They no longer go to Rikers, which is probably a good thing. You know, I don't know if you want to send a 16-year-old kid into the Rikers facilities with, you know, a 25-year-old known gangbanger for years. So they have their own facility here in the Bronx is where a lot of them are going. Horizons over in the 40 precinct. So... As of now, it really hasn't had any negative effect into how we do our prosecutions. And if this works, uh, where we can change some of these kids' attitudes early on so they don't become that three-time loser felon, that they, they can find the errors of their way early and become a productive member of society, well, that would be a great thing. Is this one of the reasons why the NYPD reaches out to kids with certain programs or... There's the PAL. Working, working with the PAL, yeah, we work with the PAL on a regular basis. PAL is a fantastic organization. We encourage our cops, all our neighborhood policing officers are tightly tied into every one of the PAL centers within their precinct. If we can get to the kids, that's the future of the city. If we can keep the kids away from going into the violence, staying away from the gangs, finding an alternative, well, then as great as the city is right now, we'll only get greater. That is our future. We run other programs besides the PAL. We do a thing called Get It Off Your Chest. So this is our neighborhood policing officers going into local schools where a principal will identify, I don't want to say problem kids, but kids who, who could benefit from having to sit down with police officers. And it's a straight, frank conversation. I'm the cop in the neighborhood, and tell me why you don't like the police. And a lot of the kids don't have a problem saying why they don't like the cop in the neighborhood. Now, this is the same cop this kid's going to see out on the street, and he can explain, well, we do this because of this. We do that. This is why we do this. And after a while, once the tension gets broken in the room, it becomes a real conversation, and people start seeing one another as human. So that kid is now looking at the cop, not just as a blue uniform, but he's looking at him as police officer Joe, police officer John, and they can start that conversation where maybe we can move a kid away from 
the negative aspects out on the streets. And also while the police officer might be patrolling the area, they'll say, oh, that's Policeman John. He's a cool he's guy. A- or, you know, the police officer will know that's Johnny and he lives here and he's eh, there was some bad kids over there. But Johnny come over here and, and, right. and stay away from those bad kids. Right. And Johnny may give us some information. Hey, those kids over there, man, I, I'm going home because they're talking about causing some trouble. And yeah. maybe that we can now intercede it and prevent it from happening. That's taking it back to uh, the way it used to be. In the good old days? Is that the way to say it? <laughs> so now recently, I thought this was a, a very interesting story. Recently, a Domino's delivery man saw some guy running from officers in Manhattan, and it's been reported that the delivery guy yelled, I'll stop him, officers, and blocked the suspect, blocked his path with the bike. Are there other stories like this that just, you know, we just don't happen to make the news? There are stories that happen on a regular basis. New York is a great. New York is like to get involved. And we, I, listen, I won't encourage someone to take action besides notifying the police, calling us, because we don't want people to endanger themselves thinking that they had it. This is what we do. This is what we signed up to do. But when someone like that guy comes out there and, and helps us and, and takes that step, it, it's fantastic. We've had incidences in the past where police officers were being assaulted and someone came running up and started jumping in and helping out cops, making sure that our cops didn't get hurt. It happens on a regular basis. And a lot of times, a person who gets involved doesn't want notoriety. Thank you very much, officer. Thank you. You're okay. And they'll leave the scene. So it happens on a regular basis in the city. This is the greatest city in the world. And it's got the greatest people in the world. It's something that the Domino's guy was great to see. But it does happen day happens in and more, day out. Happens more than we see. Much more than you see. Now, before I get into some personal things, is there anything else that you want to discuss about the NYPD? Any? Well, listen, we're, we're doing good. I think uh, we, we are on the right path. We're hoping that there can be some adjustments to that bail reform to make sure that we don't go too far of letting people out of jail. Some people may need to be in jail, and I think there has to be a recognition among legislatures, among district attorneys, among judges that to keep all of our citizens safe, there are some violent people that should not be back out on our streets. So that is a message that I hope comes across clear. I hope there's some changes in those laws. And if that happens, I think we're going to get safer and safer. Now, I hear you were recently at Fordham Law. What were you doing over there? (laughs) Uh, It's great. An opportunity to talk to one of the the Fordham Law School classes. Not arresting anybody. Not a whole death. No, no. (laughs) This was a uh, this was a defense attorney class, so I really didn't want to get grilled for having to arrest one of them. <laughs> no, but it was it was a great perspective. I mean, they've been spending the entire semester learning uh, the defense side of it, and they had a lot of questions on why we do certain things, how come this is done a certain way, the reasoning behind what we do, and they were a great group of kids, a lot of great questions. And a lot of good back and forth. Again, talking about bail reform. They had their opinions. I had mine. And and listen, it was great conversation back and forth. The two teachers are are fantastic people. It's the second time I've done it with them. An enlightened group of uh, individuals in that class. And you can see Fordham does a great job because they had some good questions yeah. you know, back and forth. And listen, anytime I could do an hour and a half with a bunch of potential defense attorneys and get out <laughs> all right, it was pretty good. <laughs> and it helped build understanding. It does. Understand why we do certain things. There's mm-hmm. something simple as they couldn't understand. They had seen body camera video that our cops take. And they couldn't understand that. In the beginning of the video, there was never any sound. And they thought that we were hiding the sound. 
I had to explain to them, and they didn't know this, that when we turn on the body camera, the body camera is going to show you what occurred 30 seconds before we turn it on. But there's no sound until the point the body camera went on. So once they realized that, it was kind of, it made sense to them instead of them, you know, under a perception that, oh, the police are trying to hide something. Right. And it helps build understanding in these conversations back and forth. Any conversation you have with anyone builds understanding. Now, Chief Terry, you're the highest ranking uniformed officer of the police department, uh, but you started out walking the beat. So do you ever miss patrolling? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's why I come back here to the Bronx so often. <laughs> I miss the Bronx. Bronx is a great place. I spent 90% of my career here in these streets. I mean, I grew up here in the Bronx, and this is where I patrolled. And it was great driving around every day, interacting with the people on the streets, and having your, your moments of terror sometimes, and your great moments, meeting great friends day in and day out. You know, now I go around the whole city, and like Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, they're not too bad either, I guess. <laughs> but there's nothing like coming <laughs> nothing home. Nothing like coming home to the Bronx. Although I can't believe, you know, when you leave today, you're not going to Arthur Avenue to get some food. I, just, I, don't, I don't even understand that yeah. part of it. Oh, <laughs> oh, listen. I said I wasn't going to Arthur. I didn't say one of my guys wasn't going to go to Arthur Avenue to pick ah, up something. <laughs> see, I should have asked more questions. I should have asked more questions. I'd like to thank my guest, NYPD Chief of Department, Terry Monahan. I'd also like to thank my producer, Andrew Millman. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.